Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. We're going to be talking about creation, as I said. Uh, and the creation, my lectures are, are, have, cover three topics. None of them in any way, any close, uh, any close to uh, being exhaustive. Uh, I've been working on Genesis 1 and 2, teaching a Sunday school class and doing other teaching for the last three years or so. Uh, I've been teaching a Sunday school class and I've, uh, I've gotten almost to the end of chapter 2 after about three years. So I, I, I don't think I can cover all that uh, this morning. Um, but I'll hit some of the highlights, I hope. They're divided into three topics. This first uh, session is on God the Creator. Uh, what does the creation account, especially in Genesis 1, that'll be our focus. What does the creation account in Genesis 1 teach us about God? Uh, secondly, we'll do creation. That'll be the second lecture. What does Genesis 1 primarily, but a little bit of Genesis 2, what does that tell us about creation, the nature of the world that we live in? What kind of world is it that we live in? And then thirdly, man, uh, and that'll uh, look more in more, more detail at the end of Genesis 2, the creation of Eve. Uh, and um, we're looking at what does, what does the creation account tell us about who we are? So who God is, what creation is, and who we are. That's the, that's the sequence of things this morning. Let me begin by reading the first 13 verses of Genesis 1. These are the first three days of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate, separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God created, called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for revealing to us the origins of all that is. We thank you for the generosity you've shown in creating a world which you do not need. 
a world that had no existence until you spoke it into existence. We praise you for the great gift that is our existence as your creatures and for the great gift that is the existence of all things. And as we meditate on these things today, we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and joy, that we would rejoice in you, our creator, and that we would rejoice and delight in the things that you've made, the gifts that you've surrounded us with. We pray that you would do this for the sake of Jesus Christ, the creating word, and we pray in his name. Amen. Creation, as you know, is a contested issue. It's a contested issue in the church, uh, and it's implicitly a contested issue in many of our cultural debates. It's a contested issue in the church largely because of the apparent discrepancy between what Genesis teaches about the origin of all things and what the mainstream of modern science has concluded about the origin of all things. Uh, the old creation-evolution debates that have been going on since Darwin and continue to go on. Uh, this is a, a topic of a great deal of uh, debates and conflict, partly because there's been a shift within uh, the evangelical world, uh, more accommodate, become, to become more accommodating to forms of theistic evolution, uh, uh, accepting evolution to some degree, even while saying that God created all things. A subheading under that, of course, is the existence of a historical Adam. That's been a point of debate among theologians and in churches, I imagine, over the last number of years. This is kind of a subset of a larger question about the uh, creation evolution debate. But it's a question of whether there is an individual man or a couple, an original couple, a man and a woman, from whom all human beings have descended. Is that real? Uh, and if it's real, if there was an Adam and an Eve, were Adam and Eve created as Genesis claims, or were Adam and Eve uh, some kind of humanoid being prior to what Genesis tells us, that God selected from a mass of humanoid, humanoid beings and uh, decided that this, these particular humanoid beings were going to be special humanoid beings, but they aren't the first humanoid in existence. In fact, for billions of years, there had been some kind of humanoid existence, and then Adam and Eve are selected and kind of upgraded. Uh, humanoid 2.0 becomes Adam and Eve, and that's where, what we descend from. Uh, that kind of uh, theory has been floated, again, in evangelical circles of late. Of course, another subhead under the uh, question of uh, the creation-evolution question is the question of the age of the Earth. Um, if you, if you total up the genealogies uh, and the chronologies of the Bible, and the Bible is full of chronological information, if you total those up, then you get an earth and a universe that's several thousand years old, not the billions of years that we get from uh, a mainstream scientific theory. Uh, 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 Usher, um, I can't think of his first name. Archbishop Usher said, uh, calculated many years ago, centuries ago, that uh, the uh, creation happened in around 4004 BC. So we're in about 6,000 years. Some others have suggested it's a little bit longer. But you're talking about thousands of years, not billions of years, or even millions of years. Uh, so it, does the Bible require us to think that? Is that what the Bible is teaching us? 
Is there some way to reconcile the Bible with these very long geological ages and, and uh, other kinds of uh, and astronomical ages that we have from, uh, from science? Those are all contested questions within the church. But there are also contested questions that I think have to do with creation that are out in the culture. Uh, our debates about environmentalism. Uh, behind it is our, deba our debates. Sometimes they come to the surface, often they remain under the surface. Debates about the place of human beings in the world and whether human beings are actually a plague on the universe, if the universe would be better off without human beings. Uh, at the extremes, you have some people suggesting that uh, certainly that the universe would be better off with many fewer human beings, uh, producing much less, driving much less, uh, producing uh, and fewer cows, producing much less methane, fewer things on the earth, fewer people in particular, uh, that would make the universe happier. Uh, but even when the, you don't take that extreme position, that's, that's a lurking issue behind the environmental debates. Are human beings a plague on the universe or are they uh, the crown of the universe, as the Bible teaches? All of our debates about sexuality, uh, about homosexuality, there's, a, there's a, the, uh, uh, the legitimacy of homosexual desire and homosexual acts. Uh, are, behind that is a question about how we were created. Uh, of course, transgenderism is uh, uh, overtly a question about a creation, whether we are, uh, we are created as male and female. Another way to put it is whether uh, the fact that we have male and female bodies uh, indicates anything about our souls. Do we have sexed souls? Uh, do, we, do we have, as created, not only male or female bodies, but male or female consciousnesses and a different, different uh, engagement with the world because we're male and female, not just in body, but in, in our whole person? Uh, I think our racial debates often have this as an implicit question. Did, in fact, God made a, make of one blood all the nations of the earth? Is that, is that true? Uh, or is there uh, something, uh, are there different origins for different kinds of races? All of those questions are important. All of those questions deserve answering, answers. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll show my cards now because I'm not going to talk about those things very much the rest of our morning. Uh, I believe that the Bible does teach that the, that the world was created in seven days. The days were morning and evening evening and morning, like our days. I think the chronologies of the Bible are accurate and they're complete, which means I do believe in a young earth, several thousand years old rather than millions of years old. I think there was an original Adam. I think that Adam was formed from the dust of the ground and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That God created the woman by taking uh, Selah, a rib, we'll put rib in quotation marks, placeholder for now, we'll talk about this a little later. Uh, from a rib, he created, a, he made a woman from a rib that he took from a man. I think all these are real things that actually happened. Uh, I'll take the label fundamentalist with a capital F on these issues if, if, you, if you care to assign that to me. Uh, I'm happy to accept that label. Uh, and uh, of course, those, all, these, those inform my responses to all the cultural issues that I've just mentioned. Uh, but I don't want to focus on those things. And the reason I don't want to focus on things is because I think our focus on those disputed points about Genesis 1 and 2, about the creation account, can sometimes distract us from things that Genesis is intending to teach us. We get so caught up in the question of how long the days are that we miss some other very important things that God is doing 
in, uh, uh, through those days, uh, the way the days relate to each other, what, what does it mean for God to create over a space of time? That's an important question, and we might miss that if we're just obsessed with the question about the length <coughs> of the days. Uh, what I want to look at, as I said, is what this text teaches us about God, what it teaches us about the nature of the world that we live in, and what it teaches us about our humanity. Uh, I'll leave all those disputed questions over to the side. That's for another time, another day. I'm happy to discuss them uh, in the breaks and so on, uh, but that's not going to be the focus of my, of my talks. I think we, we miss a lot of the richness and beauty and truth that is in Genesis 1 if we just focus on disputed questions. You can, you can get so caught up in debates uh, that you miss things that are right in front of you. So first of all, before I get to the first topic, which is God the Creator, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the character of Genesis 1. And this is uh, the first part of your notes. The structure and texture of Genesis 1. First structure. How is Genesis 1 put together? How are the days of creation ordered? Genesis 1, it goes into chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3 is actually the end of that, that week, the Sabbath is recorded at the beginning of chapter 2. Um, the, uh, that, that section is divided, obviously, into days. And then the days are arranged in a particular order. There's a symmetry in the way that the days are arranged and what happens on each day. And the panel chart that I have there is a very popular way of seeing the arrangement of, uh, the, of Genesis 1 uh, and leading into the first part of Genesis 2. Uh, God... Uh, first creates an earth that's formless, it's shapeless, and it's void. Void simply means it's empty. And over the course of the six days of creation, God first forms the world, and then he fills it. So he creates the world immature, with this condition of formlessness and emptiness, and he's bringing it to maturity through the course of the six days of creation. That's the, that's the big sequence. The first three days are days of forming. The second three days are days of filling. And you can see on the chart there how they correspond to each other. Uh, the days of forming are basically God separating things. He creates things, he makes things on the first three days, but he's basically forming the world by separating different regions of the world and creating different environments in the world. The first separation is the separation of light and darkness. He speaks light into existence. And then having spoken light into existence into what was previously a dark world, he speaks light into existence and then he separates day and night and puts them into the rhythm of night and day. There's kind of a dance going on between darkness and light. Evening and morning is the way that Genesis 1 puts it. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that, uh, that temporal structure, the structure of time, is the structure of day and night. We have light time, we have the time when the sun is up, that's the time we're working, that's the time we're uh, conscious. Uh, nighttime comes, we go to sleep, we rest. That's the rhythm of our lives and that's set up by the separation at the beginning uh, in, for, in day one. On day two, God again separates. This time he's not separating time, but he's separating space. He creates light and he separates Light and darkness create day and, uh, day and night. Uh, and then he takes the waters. Genesis 1-2 says that 
the earth was formless and void, and it's basically a deep, the spirit is hovering over the waters. You have a watery, formless creation. And on day two, God separates the waters, takes some of the waters up. Now there are heavenly waters, they're upper waters, and leaves the rest of the waters down on the earth. And he creates the firmament to stand in between them. That's, that's the blue sky. The dome of the blue sky that we see is what the Bible describes as the firmament, or in my translation, the expanse. Again, it's a separation. It's a separation that creates space. It creates a space of up and down. The sky above and the earth beneath. Right now, we don't have any earth. We just have water. And then on the third day, another day of separation. Actually, the way that, the, the way that Genesis describes it, it's a gathering of the waters. But the gathering of the waters beneath the firmament into one place creates a separation between those waters on the earth and the dry land that emerges when the, all the water is gathered into one place. So you have another separation, in effect, between water and land, between land and sea. So at the end of day three, we have a formed world, a structured world, a firmament above, earth beneath, and waters under the earth. Sky above, heavens above, earth beneath, waters under the earth. That, that threefold universe, that three-story universe, is the way the Bible describes the visible world. All, over, all through the Bible, that's the way the, the visible world is described. There are invisible things in reality, but that's the visible world consists of the sky above, blue during the day, a vast black uh, expanse of sky with stars and the moon at night. That's above the earth beneath and the waters beneath the earth. Day, th day three, you have that structure. Beginning in day four, the Lord begins to fill in those zones that he's created. So he created light and darkness day and night on day one. Corresponding to that on day four, the second part, he fills light and darkness with lights. He puts the sun in the sky to govern the day. He puts the moon in the sky to rule over the night. And then the stars also will place along with the moon. Uh, later in the Bible, we learn that the stars also share in the rule of night along with the moon. But you notice the relationship between days one and four. Day one, light and darkness. Day four, act of filling the light and the darkness. Uh, day two is a day of separation between the waters above and the waters below. And on day five, the Lord fills the waters below by summoning fish and all swimming creatures, all water creatures into existence. So day five corresponds to day two. And then separation of the waters on day three, the separation of water and dry land, rather, uh, that's cor corresponding to that is day six, which is land animals and man are created on that last day. So forming and filling, once God has formed the world and filled it uh, with all creatures, then he sits back. It's very good, he says, at the, uh, he declares at the end of chapter one, and he enters into his Sabbath rest. Okay. That works. You can, you can outline the, uh, the creation week in that fashion, and it, uh, it illuminates the correspondence. It illuminates the sequence of forming and filling. That's a really important sequence in the Bible. Forming and filling is what we're constantly doing. If you want to make something, first you shape it, and then you fill it. You build a house, and then you put the furniture in. Don't reverse that. You don't, fill, you don't gather furniture into a room and then build a room around it. You might build a room, to, build a room so that it fits a certain furniture. 
but you have to have the, the, the room built before you put the furniture in. That's what the Lord is doing. He's a great architect. He's a great builder. But there are some anomalies here uh, in that two-panel sequence, that two-panel structure. Um, one of the anomalies is day three. I, I read uh, down through day three at the beginning. Day three in the forming filling is the day of forming. It's a separation of land and sea. But that's only half of day three. The other half of day three is the Lord speaking to the earth and calling on the earth to produce vegetation. Plants yielding seed, which is grasses, uh, grains, and then trees producing fruit that has seed in them. So why do we have, that looks like an act of filling. It looks like God is beginning to fill on what a day that should be a day of forming. Why? He looks like he's jumping the gun. So why is he doing that on day three rather than on a different day, rather than on uh, the second half of the week? We also can notice the anomaly of uh, what sets out the pattern of forming and filling. Notice in, in verse 2 of Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void. That's true. But it's also dark. It has three immaturities or imperfections, not just two. And in order to, to make the world, to, uh, to, to form the world, to form the universe that we know, the cosmos we know, God addresses each of those. He makes light, he forms, he fills. All three of those has to happen, have to happen. And that's what is happening through the course of the creation. God is not just forming and filling, but first he illuminates, and then he forms, and then he fills. Uh, the, the chiasm that I have there on your outline, on your notes, uh, captures some of the uh, things that fall through the cracks when we look at it just as a two-panel structure. I won't take time to go through that. A chiasm, as you can see there from the outline, is a literary structure. It's a way of putting together a text so that the beginning of the text matches what's at the end of the text. You know, there, you start there, you go away from there, and then you go back home. That's basically the beginning and end of the chiasm. There and back again. The first part of the story matches the second part of the story. Not exactly, because something happened in between. You know, Frodo goes back to the Shire, but the Shire is not the same as when he left it. Bilbo goes there and back again, the original title of The Hobbit. He goes there and back again, but when he gets back, it's not the Shire that he, he's not the same, he's not the same Bilbo that he was, and the Shire's not the same as it was when he left it. And yet there's a correspondence, this is the same place. So in a chiasm, the first and the last section correspond, the second section and the next to last section correspond, the third section and the uh, third to last section correspond, and so on. Uh, that's a way of outlining Genesis 1. And you'll notice, just look at days 3 and 5. You notice in that chiasm that uh, the chiasm captures the correspondence between days 3 and 5, which are not corresponding in the panel, in the panel outline. On both days 3 and 5, God speaks twice. On both days 3 and 5, the word good, the judgment that something is good, occurs in the middle of the day, not at the end, or not just at the end. On day three, we have the first occurrence of the word fruit. It's plants bearing fruit. And the first occurrence of the word kind, after their kind. Day five is the first time God speaks those words, be fruitful according to your kind, to living souls, the fish in the sea. 
So there's, the, there's language that corresponds back and forth. So th that's another way to outline it. I'll leave you to, to think through that further, just in the interest of time. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. I want to say a few things about the literary texture of Genesis 1 that will lead us into talking about God as creator. What do I mean by literary texture? Uh, I mean that uh, in the case of Genesis 1, we have a very repetitive text. It almost sounds like an incantation. It, sounds, it seems like, if you read it superficially, that the same thing happens on every single day. God runs through the same sequence of actions every single day. God said, let there be. It was so. He saw it was good. He called something. Evening and morning were the next day. Over and over and over again. It's almost like uh, the rubrics in the Book of Common Prayer. It's like you're looking at a ritual text where things are, uh, things are done in a particular order over and over again. Uh, and that's true. It does have that kind of literary texture to it. It's repetitive. It's ritualistic. It's divided cleanly into seven paragraphs, and the seven paragraphs uh, correspond to each other very closely. It, it's also, the texture is also determined or shaped by repetition of terms. And these repetition of words and terms are often done in numerically significant numbers. So the name of God in, uh, uh, in Genesis 1 is Elohim. The other name of God, which is Yahweh, is not used in Genesis 1. It's not used until the beginning of the second section of Genesis that starts in chapter 2, verse 4. Elohim. The name Elohim occurs 35 times in Genesis 1, into to Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. Elohim occurs 35 times. You might notice, run through your times tables. 35 is a multiple of 7. It's 7 times 5. Here's a 7-day creation. The creator, the repetition of his name, is associated with the 7, 7 times 5. Earth, that word is used 21 times. I'll give you a second to run through your times tables. Okay. Also a multiple of seven. So 21 is three times seven. And that, that goes on all over the place in Genesis, Genesis 1. You have uh, many words repeated a, a, a significant number of times, uh, usually a multiple of seven, sometimes not. For example, the phrase God said or Elohim said. Ah, we want that to be seven times. It's not. God says is used ten times in the creation account. Now you might be thinking perhaps of another time when God spoke ten words, when he spoke ten times. I think there's a correspondence between the ten speeches of God in Genesis 1 and the ten words that God speaks from Sinai to Israel. When God speaks to Israel from Sinai, he's speaking new creation words to them. He's recreating Israel by giving them his law and by entering into covenant with them. There's this numerical correspondence between Genesis uh, 1 and Exodus, 17, Exodus 20. Uh, the, it doesn't work with the other, with the other uh, the Deuteron Deuteronomic, uh, uh, I don't think it works with Deuteronomy. Yeah, it does, but sorry. Scratch that. I got, the, I got myself confused. Deuteronomy has a repetition of the, of the ten words, but it's somewhat different. Okay. Plus, okay, I just allow me to go into a little bit more detail, just a little bit, to give you, a, give you the flavor. Uh, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
contains, guess, how many words in the Hebrew? Seven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, consists of consonants, no vowels, only consonants. Uh, the Hebrew text that we use now had vowels inserted. There are little dots and dashes and, and other kinds of markings that are around the consonants. But if you look at an ancient Hebrew text, it's just a string of consonants. And really ancient Hebrew texts don't even have spaces between words. No vowels, no spaces between words. So uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, seven words in the Hebrew, 28 consonants, 28 letters, four times seven. And the sentence divides in neatly into two halves of 14 consonants each. In the beginning created God, those are the first three words, 14 consonants. The heavens and the earth, 14 consonants. Genesis 1-2 contains 14 words. So already before we have even got, we don't know yet, if you're, if you're reading Genesis 1 for the first time, you don't know yet where this is going. You don't know it's going toward a seven-day creation account. But if you're reading in the Hebrew, if you're an ancient Hebrew reader and you're reading it for the first time, that's hard to imagine. But suppose you're reading it for the first time and you're taking note of how it's put together. You already are anticipating the full scale of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, I think, is the first act of creation, but it also summarizes everything that God is going to do. And it summarizes it in seven words and 28 consonants. So you have this kind of uh, microscopic, macroscopic correspondence. On the large scale, God has created the world through seven days. The very first act of creation is described in seven words and 28 consonants. And then we get to the Sabbath command right at the end. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. In the Hebrew, those three verses which describe the Sabbath, the seventh day, contain 35 Hebrew words. Seven times five. Genesis 2 through the first part of chapter 3 contain three sentences. Each of the sentences has seven words. Each of the sentences contains the phrase seventh day. Let me read those for you. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. First clause. You notice the word seventh day. In the Hebrew, that's seven, seven words. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Again, seven words, the word seventh day used. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. The third clause, that also includes seven words and, uh, and the phrase seventh day. This is a super seven, right? Uh, this, is, this is the, uh, the, the a super seventh. Uh, you have seven, seven words in the, first, in the first act of creation. When you get to the Sabbath, it's seven, 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 seven all over the place. And not only are there seven grouping of seven letters and seven words, the, the word seventh is used three times. So it's a highly complex literary text with all these anticipations, small-scale anticipations of the large-scale uh, revelation that God has created over the course of a week. It's very repetitious, as I said, but not as repetitious as you might think. Again, if you read it superficially, you think, oh, God is doing the same thing day after day after day after day. Not so, in fact. How many days 
does God name something? Three. Only the first three days. He names day and night. He names uh, the sea and the heavens, the firmament. He names water, the seas, and the land. Then he stops naming things. When he creates man and places man in the earth, Adam is entering what's basically a nameless world. None of the things that God made have yet been named. The things that he's filled the world with. The basic structures he's given name to, names to. But then he's leaving the world open for man to name. Of course, in Genesis 2, we find that's exactly what Adam does. He names the animals. And we've been, we've been naming things ever since. Constantly naming new things. Discovering new things. Creating new things. Assigning new names to things. And we're not finished. We won't be finished until uh, the, the last judgment. Probably not then. We'll continue to add names to things. New people come into existence. You give them a name. You create some new chemical compound at the laboratory. You give it a new name. You discover a new star. You give it a new name. The world is being named. That's a divine act that God has given over to human beings. He started, he started the process. He set the trajectory of a named world, a world that has all of these, uh, has labels assigned to everything. But it left most of the work to us. We also think that God created everything just by speaking it. Let there be. Let there be. How often does he do that in Genesis 1? When he actually says, merely says X, and X happens. Once. Day 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Day 2, God says, let there be a firmament. And he makes a firmament. There's an additional verb there. There's an additional act. God only speaks light into existence directly. And then after the middle of the week, God begins to use his word not to bring things directly into existence, but to empower the creation to complete itself. Look at day three. How do plants come up on the earth? God said, let there be plants on the earth, and there were plants on the earth. If your verse 11 says that, you've got, a, you've got the wrong translation. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind and with them and on the earth, and the earth brought forth vegetation, etc., etc., etc. Earth does that. Earth, earth is empowered by the word of God to bring forth grain plants and fruit trees. The, uh, you know, the main ingredients of bread and wine. Those are the first things, that, the first plants that are made on the third day. But it's earth that's doing that. Earth can't do it on its own. Earth, ha earth is nothing on its own. Earth doesn't have any power of its own. The only power that earth has at all is power that God has conferred on it. And he confers that power by his word. He's going to do the same thing to the seas. Let the seas teem with living souls and the seas team with living souls he doesn't say let there be living souls he said let the seas team creation is mediated through creation just like it is now I mean after, after day one 
the world is basically functioning as it does for us. If you want fruit trees in your yard, you don't pray and ask God to speak a fruit tree into existence. You depend on the earth and your own labor, because you need a man to till the ground. You depend on the earth, empowered from heaven, empowered by the word of God, to give you a fruit tree. This is a creator who is sovereign, but he's sovereign in giving sovereignty and power to creatures, sharing his power with things that he made, sharing the ability to name, sharing the ability to separate, because human beings are going to do that a lot. We still do it a lot. Sharing the ability to produce new things, to be fruitful. That's divine power. And God has shared it with us. One other example of that in Genesis 1, which I think is crucial. I, I didn't read this part, but we'll read it at the beginning of the next session. On day four, God has created light and darkness. He's put the ferment in. He, presumably, he's been the one to determine when day, day dawns and when night starts. That rhythm has been going on for three days. Evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, since day one. And then God makes the sun, moon, and stars. And everybody says, ah, Genesis, absurd. There can't be day and night without sun, moon, and stars. How there can't be day and night? It's obviously not intended literally. Like we get caught up in those kind of questions. I think we miss the amazing fact that what happens on day four is that God delegates his own rule of day and night to creatures. Apparently, he's been the one making it day every day. From day four on to this morning, God has delegated the power to make day happen to the sun. He's delegated the rule of the night to the moon and the stars. What we find in Genesis 1 is a God who has sovereign power to bring things into existence that did not exist, and the even more sovereign power to empower those things that did not exist to be created themselves. God isn't threatened by the fact that the earth has power to make fruit trees. God isn't threatened by the fact that the sun go comes up in the morning and rules the day. God isn't threatened by human powers and human abilities. That's how sovereign he is. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a threat to his sovereignty. He is so utterly sovereign, sovereign, he can share his power with creatures and still remain the utterly sovereign God. I think already, in my mind at least, I don't know if in your minds, but I'm already talking about the kind, I, well, I hope, I'm already talking about the kind of God that, uh, that creates. I think, in my mind, I'm already talking about the God who's revealed as Trinity in the New Testament. The God who is incarnate in the, as the Son of God in the flesh for our salvation. That's the God who's already revealed in the way that God creates. God is already showing himself to be a generous God who shares himself with his creatures and shares his power with his creatures and rejoices and delights in elevating his creation to share in those powers. That's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God who's revealed in the Incarnation. Already. I think we're already talking about the Trinity in some more direct ways. 
in Genesis 1. And in the interest of time, I'm afraid I'll have to say this rather rapidly. Is a, does Genesis 1 teach that God is one and only one without any plurality in him? That's what many have thought. You have God as the one God in the Old Testament. God has revealed his trinity in the New. But there's also a pretty strong tradition uh, from the early church fathers. Augustine is probably the most, the one who elaborates this most, who says that the creation is already revealing to us the, uh, the trinity. Uh, some have seen this in the plural uh, name of God, Elohim, which in Hebrew is a plural, the im, ending on a Hebrew word is a plural. You use the word seraphim, that means more than one seraph. Seraph is the singular. Cherubim is a plural. Cherub, singular, is just cherub. You want to have more than one, the cherubim all around me. I met a cherub yesterday, okay. singular and plural. Elohim is a plural word, but it, it, it uh, it behaves oddly for a plural word. The pronouns that are used for it in Genesis 1 are singular. The verbs are singular. If you wanted to capture the grammatical oddness of the way Genesis 1 talks about God, you'd say something like, God's created. In the beginning, God's create. Not sorry. In the beginning, God's creates the heavens and the earth. Plural subject singular verb. That's what's happening all the way through Genesis 1. You have a one God who's acting as one, who even speaks of himself as I in Genesis 2, and yet he has this plural name. We always already have a hint, I think just in the name that God uses, a hint, not fully realized or fully revealed, but a hint that there's more to God than just the one being. There's more to God than just the one person to use the, the uh, more elaborate language of the New Testament. We also have God creating by the Spirit. Elohim, introduced in Genesis 1.1. Elohim's Spirit is introduced in the very next verse. You, you can find some commentaries, you can find some translations that translate that. Otherwise, the earth was formless and void darkness over the face of the deep, and a great wind was blowing, blowing over the face of the waters. A godlike wind. No, the phrase spirit of God, everywhere else it's used, Elohim, Ruach Elohim, spirit of Elohim, wherever else that's used in the Pentateuch is referring to the spirit of God, which we know, again, in the New Covenant is revealed as the, as the one who comes from the Father and the Son, as the third, what we call the third person of the Trinity. Elohim is creating through his spirit, and the spirit is only mentioned the one time, but the Spirit is crucial, as we'll see in the next lecture, the Spirit is crucial for the kind of world we live in. We live in a world that, uh, not, that hasn't for an instant been bereft of Spirit. The Spirit has been active from the very moment that heavens and, the heavens and the earth came into existence. The heavenly Spirit has been present in the world, hovering, creating, empowering, giving life, from the very beginning. And then, of course, God speaks. He creates by his spirit. He creates by his talk. And if we didn't have John 1, then we might think, well, you know, 
That doesn't say anything about God be, God himself being word. It's just saying he's a, he, he can speak, and he can speak creatively. But John 1 tells us differently, doesn't it? In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, clear reference to Genesis 1-1, was the word. The word John is going to go on to tell us is the word by, whom, by which all things came into being. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's interpreting Genesis 1, but instead of saying that God speaks, he says the word that God speaks is himself God. God exists as the God who is and the God who speaks himself, and as the God who manifests himself as the power of the Spirit. That's the God who's creating the world, and we have that already unveiled to us, again, not fully, but beginning to be unveiled to us in the first three verses of the Bible. I don't think there's a single verse of the Bible that teaches anything but a Trinitarian theology, or at least a proto-Trinitarian theology. God never reveals himself simply as one being without any differentiation in himself. Already in Genesis 1, right at the beginning, he's revealed, he's revealed as uh, the Trinity. I think the most fascinating and the most um, revealing evidence comes from Genesis 1.26, where Elohim pauses before he creates man in his own image according to his own likeness. He pauses and says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle of the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make our image, our likeness. Why a plural? Why does God talk that way? Well, um, you might have watched the coronation. King Charles talks that way now. We do this and that. It's a royal we, that's what some have suggested. It's a, it's a we of majesty. Some have suggested that uh, Elohim is addressing the divine council. He's created angels at some point. We, I have my theory about when, I, we don't know for sure when. But we know that heaven has hosts because Genesis 2.1 tells us. Already heaven has hosts and now God, Elohim is addressing the hosts that are gathered around him. The angelic host that you see, for example, in uh, um, the commissioning scene of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, the host that you see when Micaiah preaches to Ahab and Jehoshaphat, I was in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of all the spirits. The Lord was enthroned and surrounded by all these spirits. Some suggest that the Lord is, is uh, speaking to that kind of divine counsel. Uh, I don't think that that's possible for two reasons. One is God says let us make man in our image. That's his plan. And then verse 27 says God had created man in his image. So first of all he says us. Now when it he actually reports what he does it's gone back to singular instead of the plural of verse 26. I think that's hard to square with the idea that God is addressing all of the angels if he's addressing all the angels and saying, come on, guys, let's work together to make man. And then the one who makes man is a singular he. Um, 
that doesn't that's hard to square you, you shift from the plural to the singular in the, in the space of the verbs the other problem more more damaging i think uh, is to think through what it would mean for man to be made in the image of angels uh, what's happening with man, and we'll talk about this more in the last session, man is the image of God. Image in the Bible means a three-dimensional representation or signifier of a God. The same word used here is used for idols. You're not to make idols. Idols are images of the gods. God has his own image. You're not supposed to make images and bow down to them because you are the image. The living God makes living images of himself. Dead gods make dead images, statues that are put in the temples. At the climax of the Lord's creation, as the climax of his building of a, of a cosmic temple, the Lord places his image in the world that represents him, that is his claim on the earth. That's what man is. If that's what it means for man to be the image, then he certainly can't be the image of a creature. Because then he's just an image of another, of a false god. If, he's a, if a man is made in the image of, creature, uh, of angels, then, he's, uh, then uh, he can't be the image in the way that the Bible speaks about images. So what does it mean for God to say, let us? God says, let us, I think, because he's talking amongst himself. We have to say that. We have to use that confusing singular plural language. They are talking amongst themselves. We have a speaker saying, let us. We have somebody who's being addressed we have something, a magical phenomenon called an us or a we. We think about that. We, we, we use that kind of language and we do it all the time without thinking about it. It's a magical thing. You know, you, that you can get five guys on a basketball floor and they become a one thing. They become a we, a complex basketball machine. That's the kind of language that the Lord is using of himself. God is a conversation. God is a God of communion. God is a God who can say, let us. God is also a God who can say, I. Already again, we have the Trinitarian God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is an eternal communion of love as Father, Son, and Spirit. That God is already being revealed. That's the creator. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your revelation to us. We thank you for the generosity you've shown in creating a world that's filled with wonders. We thank you for the generosity you've shown in creating us as your creatures and for empowering us to imitate you. We pray that as we continue to look at these things and consider these things, that you would raise our hearts in gratitude and praise uh, that you are the living God, the creator, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has brought all things into being. We pray you, praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.